0: All right, well, turn with me, if you would, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter number 8 is where we'll be in the uh, New Testament today, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and uh, we've been going verse by verse through 1 Corinthians, and um, the Bible is our authority for our life as followers of Christ, and it's inspired, we believe, by God that uh, he delivered to us truth to help us understand how to follow Jesus. And so this morning we're going to talk about following Jesus in the gray areas, 1 Corinthians chapter number 8, and uh, beginning there with verse number 1. I hope you follow in your Bible or on your device, however you want to follow, uh, because we'll keep referring back to the text. But here the Bible says, "...now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge." Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks he, that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this
1: one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so called gods, whether in heaven, or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords. And what he really is saying is many so-called gods, many so-called lords. Yet for us there is only one God, the Father, of whom are all things. And we, for him and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all
0: things and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled.
1: But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware, lest
0: somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother
1: perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you, ha- you sin against Christ. Therefore if food makes my brother stumble, I will never Again, eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'll use your word today to help us as we follow you in the areas that sometimes we don't know exactly what the right thing to do is. And we we pray for your help now that you'll speak to us from Scripture and we give ourselves to you for these uh, moments this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when was the last time you were concerned about whether the food you were, you went to Kroger, you went to the meat market, you said, hey, I need some ribeyes, and uh, by the way, were these offered to idols? I'd need to know that before I purchased this. Or you went to Publix, or where Kroger, wherever you go. You know, that never, right? That never happened to you, did it? That you went to the supermarket, and you said, hey, I want steak, or ribs, or whatever, but first, I need to make sure this wasn't offered uh, to an idol as an offering and then sold in, in the market. Of course not, you know, because it's a cultural uh, issue that he's speaking to, and we talked about that before. But here's, here's the right question to ask. When was the last time that a practice in your life as a follower of Jesus, you had a question as to whether it was appropriate or inappropriate? You had some gray area. You're like, I'm not quite sure about whether or not this is a practice or a a commitment that a a believer in Jesus ought to have in their life. Well, that's probably occurred with great frequency in our life where we ran into some issue that we had some uncomfortableness in our conscience, but the Bible didn't speak directly to it. You know, uh, some of you will remember in the past that there were scruples that people held to, like, you don't go to the movies on Sunday. Does the Bible say that? No, the Bible doesn't say you can't go to the movie on... It doesn't say you can't dance. You know, some of you maybe shouldn't dance, I don't know. But the Bible doesn't say you shouldn't, and I think probably, you know, it's a healthy thing to to uh, make yourself uncomfortable and dance sometimes. But the Bible doesn't say you can't dance. You know, there are all sorts of gray areas where sometimes people have formulated ideas and rules that, you know, there's no scripture to support what what they say, but they're trying to find out how to follow Christ in some gray area that uh, they're not quite sure what the right thing to do or the wrong thing is there. So whose morality do we follow if there does not seem to be clear direction on a particular uh, practice? Who do we follow? Where do we go? How do I make this is for a quote from someone talking about the gray areas. How do I make decisions in instances where the Bible does not explicitly instruct that I must act or not act in a certain way? That is the definition of a gray area. And, th- and what the Bible is talking about in this passage was for them a gray area. That's why again he says, now concerning things offered to idols. He's talking about something they had a question about. We don't know what we should do. Now, in their society, they were surrounded by that sort of uh, issue on a daily basis, that if they went to a market, it was possible that the meat that they were trying to uh, purchase and take home and eat might first have been offered as a sacrifice to a pagan god. And they're asking, is it right or wrong for us to eat this meat, if, if that's its Background. If that's my steak's background, you know, can I eat this hamburger or whatever? And so the it's a gray area. And, and what we want to think about is what guides us. What are the tests in our own life when we're faced with something that we think, I'm not sure what's right or wrong here. So we're going to look at some questions that, you know, come straight from this text that will help us to think about how we can follow Jesus in the gray areas. When I'm not quite sure whether this is right or wrong, what do I do? How do I proceed? So here's the first question that we can ask that helps us to think about following Jesus, being a faithful follower of Him, is, is my intent to build other people up? If I do this uh, practice, which for me is questionable... Is my intent in it to build other people up, to strengthen, help them? Am I mindful of that? Look at what he says here in verse 1. He says, we all have knowledge. What he's saying here is uh, they considered knowledge to be spiritual currency. So they thought, we have a special understanding that gives us liberty and permission in this area. We know certain things that cause us to have confidence about how we're acting. And they were right in this case. They were right, and he's going to say that. An idol is nothing in the world. He's like, you're right to say that. So, but he, he says, be careful, because knowledge can puff you up. He says, knowledge puffs up, but uh, love builds up. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. So what I want to do is make sure that what I'm committing to helps you and doesn't hurt you. builds you up doesn't tear, tear your walk with Christ down. Are we patient with the person who is still learning and growing? That's who... There are two groups of people in mind in this passage. One group is a group of people who claim maturity, although he seems to say your maturity is a little questionable here because of how it's being worked out in practice. Two groups of people. One group is claiming maturity, and of course there always will be people who are further along on some Continuum who have learned and internalized the Bible and are living it out, but the other group of people are like babies. They're just coming along. They're weak. They need. They still need guidance more so than this, the other group of people. So he's saying he's asking this question: Are you patient with the person who's still learning and growing? You know, I think about that. That's practical. You know, because we're sometimes we'll be so frustrated with people and problems, but a good question to ask is, am I patient with the person who's still learning and growing? Aren't you glad God's patient with you? God is patient with us. You know, He's he's much more patient than we are. He encourages us in the Bible to ask for wisdom if we lack it, and He helps us without fault-finding. That's what James says. He says, do any of you lack wisdom? Let him ask God. He'll give to all liberally and without reproach. That without reproach means without fault finding. If you need wisdom, you ask God. And God's his uh, default setting is, I want to help you. I want to bless you. That's who God is. And so the question for us is, is that who I am? He encourages us to ask for wisdom. It's the attitude. The attitude of God Someone expressed this way is that God is led solely by his desire to bless. Aren't you glad that that's what God is like? He is led solely, only by his desire to bless. So that's the character of God. And he says, this is how I want you to be. Because knowledge for them, you'll hear people sometimes talk about Gnosticism. You've probably heard that. It's a flawed idea that people would say they'd branch out into what really is false uh, uh, spirituality. But Gnosticism was a claim to a special knowledge. And they claimed, we've got this special knowledge. It gives us permission. It causes us to have more flexibility and freedom in what we're doing. He's, he's like, that's fine unless in the process you're trampling on a weaker person. In the process, somebody that needs to be helped is being hurt. So and if knowledge isn't accompanied by compassion, we're missing the point. And it's easy to miss the point. But sec- a second question, are my actions done in humility? <clears throat> First, is my intent to build up, to help the other person? Second, am I, am I motivated by humility? Is it done in humility? Because he says anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. That's uh, the way one translation puts it. Coach John Wooden always liked to say, and he said, uh, it's what we learn after we know it all that counts. In other words, you're always learning. You're always uh, in a position, a posture to be a learner. And being teachable is one of the most essential ways that we evolve in godliness. Being teachable. You know, being able to sometimes acknowledge that we're, you know, we don't have it. They weren't there. That's why he says this. I thought about that this week. I don't know is a healthy admission. Sometimes, you know, just saying, I don't know. <laughs> People will respect that more than us bluffing. And I was wrong is a pretty good uh, admission, too. You know, if we can say I was wrong, I, I don't know, you're probably on your way to being a healthy adult if you can do those kinds of things. Defensiveness is the opposite of healthy learning. You know, uh, defensiveness shuts down the possibility that I can learn. Am I ever defensive? Of course, because I'm a human. But defensiveness, I know, shuts down the capacity that I can hear and learn. So if I've got my hackles up and I'm too defensive to hear the other person, I'm likely not to make progress as a follower of Jesus, and to express maturity. If anyone thinks he really knows something, he has not yet learned it as he ought to know it. Rightness can get in the way of righteousness. Sometimes rightness is so important to us that we forget about righteousness. Do I want to be a blessing in the process of you know, fleshing out my, my faith with other human beings? It's not, uh, if it's not accompanied by empathy, kindness, sometimes forgiveness, reconciliation, being right is important. But at the same time, so is being right with others. And that's an expression of righteousness. You know, I think about God, what God is like. We know that the Bible teaches that God is committed to reconciliation as one of His highest values. That's why He sent His Son, Jesus, into the world was for peace, was for reconciliation. To end the the um, enmity is the word the Bible uses between God and others, between God and people. And so God uh, has given to us His Son to effect peace. And it just demonstrates to us how important peace is from God's point of view, being right with each other. So actions done in humility will have in mind an empathy. You know, uh, there are times where... You know, in family particularly particular, it seems like we can hurt and frustrate each other so much sometimes. And I have to force myself to be mindful that uh, there, God has a purpose for these relationships that aren't always immediately obviously uh, obvious to me in my emotions and in my frustrations. And so I have to sort of de- uh, default back to that. And it's, it is humbling. But when we read this passage, he says to them, if you think you know everything, possibility is pretty high that there's a lot you have to learn yet. Then the third question we can ask from this passage, am I thoroughly clear about the character and the ways of God? Because he talks here about idolatry. And uh, for them, the the world around them, if you read Acts 17, you would see that um, he talks about Athens, Greece as a place where there, Paul went to Athens, the Apostle Paul. And while he was there, he said it was, there, was, there were idols, statues, images representing gods everywhere. And he said they even erected a statue that said to the unknown God. Just in case we left somebody out here. You know, we're going to put up a, a statue of idol to the unknown God. So idolatry in that culture was prevalent. And so, you know, we're pluralistic as a culture and we believe people worship according to their conscience. But the other uh, part of that for us is that we believe there's one God who's revealed himself according to his self-revelation and that that self-revelation ultimately was Jesus. That Jesus said, I am God in human form living among people. That's why we hold so tightly to the claim of Jesus as the Son of God, is God in human form, as the only God. Also because Jesus said that, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, and no one can come to the Father except through me. So the, this idea of idolatry, he, Paul says an idol is nothing. You know, uh, in 2000, I've shared before, the first time I ever got on an airplane, I flew all the way to uh, New Delhi, India. I'd never been on an airplane before, Flew to Atlanta, Detroit, Amsterdam, New Delhi. Got on a train and rode on a train overnight to preach the gospel and to be with believers in in India. And they had a driver who took us, you know, to all these little rural places. And he had a statuette of his God on the dashboard all week long, you know. And I thought there's some flaw in the idea that I could put adhesive on the bottom of my God and stick him on the dashboard. You know, that's what I thought. But we had interesting conversations with uh, that person. And I've been to, you know, a lot of countries, some of you have too, where like in uh, Turkey or uh, in, in some countries there are more minarets. You know, minarets, the spire on top of a mosque. You know, they're everywhere like churches in the south. And and you think about that. Are, are these people worshiping God like I worship God? or And are they wrong and in error? Well, Paul says here, he reinforces to us, we have to understand who God is according to his self-revelation. And Jesus is the, is the pinnacle of that, who he is. So he says, and I believe that all idols are fictitious rivals. He says it's a nothing, it's nothing. You know, it's represented as something. And there probably are, I think the Bible says in other places, malignant forces behind that to uh, take people away from the truth of who God is. But he says the idol itself is a nothing. It doesn't represent anything that's real and helpful. So he says when these people try to go and worship He says they're not worshiping anything. So you're right to say that. There may be so-called gods both in heaven and on earth, and some people actually worship many gods and many lords, but we understand God according to His self-revelation. He's eternal, the Bible says. Self-existent, like Scott was saying in our worship time, I am, that I am. It, It means I exist without your help. I was here before you, I am eternal, I've always been. That's who God is. He's uh, self-existent, He's eternal, He's always been. I can't explain that, but I believe it. And that Jesus Christ was God, come to earth in the form of man. That He was the man, the God-man, Jesus. That's what the Bible teaches. Those are the claims that Jesus made in His... Disciples affirmed Jesus Christ of Nazareth was eternal God who was born of a virgin who, who lived here for about 33 years and died in the place of every person taking our sin on, his, on himself. That's who he was. That He claimed to be God of very God. He claimed to have been from eternity. He has all these conversations that when you read the Gospels, They recur again and again and again. Jesus said, this is who I am. Disciples sometimes being perplexed by that, but eventually the disciples themselves, all of them chose martyrdom except for Judas the betrayer or exile rather than deny all the things that Jesus had said about himself. So he says, this is who I am, that I came from eternity. And that I'm going back to eternity. And that I'm going to sit down at the right hand of God the Father. Which in the ancient Near East was the way of claiming equality to the Father. He says, I'm equal to God. That's what Jesus said. That's who He claimed to be. I'm God, a very God. And the disciples chose martyrdom over denying that reality. And we, we know that world religions make complete, uh, competing claims, but we believe Jesus. We believe the apostles who said, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus. God in human form. So when he, he's talking about idolatry, he says an idol is nothing. Nothing. There's no substance to it. It doesn't represent God who God really is. So that's something that has to be clear to us as we, tr- we think about God and following Jesus in the gray areas. Am I clear in my own personal theology of God? Because for thousands of years, it's been the same. For all of, you know, time in the history of religion, it's been the same. God telling God's story through people and then finally saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. You remember he said that to the disciples? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And we're still listening to him. But the fourth question to ask is, am I elevating my rights over the well-being and interest of other people? Am I putting my rights first because they were? And what this uh, chapter is, is a rebuke. It's a rebuke. He's telling them still, you know, over and over again, you're not doing it right. If you were doing it right, you'd be thinking differently. Some people have scruples that are deeply offended by what appear to them to be pagan practices. And Paul, listen to what he says. He says their conscience is weak. He doesn't say they're right. They're not right. Their conscience is weak. They're immature. That's what he's saying. If you were mature, if they were mature, they would know an idol is nothing. He says, but they're not. Their their conscience is weak. But if you despise a weak person, then what are you? What's the word for that? If you despise a weak person. How about the word bully? That's a pretty good word for somebody that despises weak people. He says, if you despise the weak among you, you're like a bully to these, to these believers. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 say, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, listen to what it says, In humility, value others. Above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Is that our normal way of thinking, being? All the honest people would say, no, you not, not, most, not most of the time. It's not my way to, to put the interest of other people before myself. But the Bible says this is what Christianity looks like when it's worked out in the life of a mature person, as I'm looking out for the interest of other people that I'm trying to look out for the weak among me and not trample on them because I've got a right to something. And and that's what they were were saying. Hey, we've got a right to do this. I love Rich Mullins. I've said that before. I love his music. He died uh, back in the 90s, but he was a very thoughtful Christian. And he had a song that said, um, it was called Brother's Keeper. It says, I'll be my brother's keeper, not the one who judges him. I want... I can't read my little tiny handwriting. <laughs> I won't despise him for his weakness or regard him for his strength. I won't take away his freedom. I will help him learn to stand. I'll, I love that. I'll be my brother's keeper, not the one who judges him. I won't despise him for his weakness. I won't regard him for his strength. I won't take away his freedom, Freedom, but I will learn uh, to help him stand. I believe that that was like based on this passage of Scripture. You know, this idea is that I, you remember the occasion for that in the Bible was when um, Abel and Cain, Cain has killed his brother and God comes to him to confront him and he's like, am I my brother's keeper? And God's like, yes, you are your brother's keeper. And he'd still say the same thing to us, you're your brother's keeper. You're the one that I put in their life to look out for the, the weak person, to build them up, to strengthen, to help them. Fifth question: uh, Helping us think about how do I follow Jesus in the gray areas? Am I attaching God's approval to my performance? Look at verse eight here. But food does not commend us to God. For uh, neither if we eat it are we the better, nor do we if we do not eat it are we the worse. So, you know, sometimes people's system of belief is uh, the codes and rules and dietary rituals. Uh, they are really still hold denominations that hold to. Old Testament dietary principles as being central in their understanding of how you how you um are right with God or not right with God. But the Scripture says those aren't the things that make you right with God. The Gospel excludes your performance. We can't earn His love. We don't deserve His love. But the way I see it, that takes the pressure off. That takes the pressure off of me. I'm glad it's not my performance. Do I want to be an ethical... Virtuous, godly person? Yes, I do. I'm glad my performance is not what gives me a standing with God. But did I be in big trouble? And by the way, so would you. I don't have to wonder whether God loves me or uh, I've done enough because He's already said Jesus did enough. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were uh, still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. So it's not my performance. Repentance and faith are God's expectation. Receiving His free gift is His requirement. That's good news. Isn't that good news? Repentance and faith. And we say, help, help save me. I need your help. That's God's requirement. When I'm unsure of what God requires of me, it's good to remind myself of the good news that Jesus is what God requires of me. Jesus is who God requires of me. Jesus took our penalty so we could be right with God. I love, I've love. i got a copy of Martin Luther's uh, a biography written by a guy named Roland Bainton on the life of Martin Luther. And he describes how Martin Luther, this uh, monk, a, uh, a priest, was trying to understand how to be righteous. And so he went to Rome, the epicenter of religious life in his day, the 1500s is when he went there. And he, he observed everything around him. And in his spirit, there was this disappointment because he was like, this cannot be how righteousness is given to anybody this system it was corrupt and he he saw the corruption he saw the graft and all those disappointing things but the most disappointing thing of all for martin luther were, were the inadequacy of his own efforts he would do everything he knew to be righteous and still felt unrighteous he didn't know what to do about it and he he had a wise godly mentor who assigned to him to preach the Psalms and to preach the book of Galatians to students. He was a college professor, as well as being a priest. And as he uh, taught through the book of Galatians, he saw that the Scripture said, the just shall live by faith. And what he saw that that meant was, a just person is made alive by faith. That's where righteousness comes from. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to how the Bible puts it in, in another place. It says, but this is in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. The turning point in the book of Romans is Romans chapter 3 verse 21. It says, but now it's described how sin is everywhere and in everybody. But Romans 3 21 says, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law has appeared. And who did it appear in? The righteousness of God apart from the law. Nobody thought of the righteousness uh, as righteousness as being like that. The righteousness of God apart from the law. They thought it was in the law. But he says, no, now the righteousness of God apart from the law has appeared, the righteousness which is by faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul and uh, Martin Luther was hearing these things and it was revolutionary. Revolutionary. He was like, it's not my effort. It's not my works. It's God's gift of righteousness. God gives you righteousness and he gives everybody righteousness as a free gift who will call on him so that's a a great question where's my performance in this there is no your performance is not in this it's what god does six am i considering how my behavior affects a less mature believer am i considering how my behavior affects a less mature believer he's talking about the scruples of an underdeveloped conscience, a weak conscience is how he describes it. Young believers have not yet developed keen discernment. A mature Christian doesn't put the emphasis on rights, though, but on service, respect, and nurturing faith in other people. Even though we don't want people with sensitive scruples dominating congregational life, Being hostile or dismissive of them doesn't help either. So what he's saying is, if a church is healthy, people are going to be coming to faith in Christ there. They're going to be... Do you remember what it was like when you were a brand new Christian? I mean, I remember what it was like. I I didn't know how to be a Christian. And so you start thinking through these kinds of questions. What's permitted? What's not? What's not? And you don't want the whole congregation to be dominated by the preferences of people with weak uh, scruples who are essentially, like a friend of mine said, everybody starts out kind of a legalist. You start out like you're you're erring on the side of like uh, prohibition. You know, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do that. But sooner or later, you don't want to live a life that's just characterized by prohibition. Things you can't do. Sooner or later, you want to go, is there any liberty... In this, is there any freedom in this life? And you find out, yes, there is, plenty of it. But he's saying, if there are baby Christians among you who still have a very tender conscience, you want to watch out for them. You want to love them into maturity. And so that was their flaw. They weren't loving the babies among them into maturity. Listen to what Jesus says. This is so uh, powerful and weighty. He says, if anybody causes a little one to stumble, you know what He says, right? He says, it would be better for them if they had a millstone tied around their neck and were thrown into the depth of the, of the ocean or in the depth of the sea. That's about as forceful a thing as I think Jesus could say. And what He said is, the, li- the little ones among you, the weak ones, the, the ones that could easily stumble, he says, "We uh, we need to pay careful attention that we aren't the cause of them stumbling. Everybody's life is so important. It's hard to uh, keep that in mind sometimes when we're dealing with other actual humans, isn't it? That everybody's life is so important," God says because they're created by him and for him that like the scripture says here. Though this this passage feels like it's about an obscure issue, but it's really not because it highlights the importance of not being a stumbling block. Not putting something in the path of another person that would cause them to not to flourish. We want everybody to flourish. You know, God does. He wants everybody to flourish. And then here's the last question 7. Am I taking my commitment to Christ as seriously as his sacrifice deserves. Knowledge as spiritual currency. That's what they thought. Like, I know stuff, so consequently I'm mature. But really it was arrogance in disguise. As they were, It was disguised as advanced Christianity. So is it worth, worth it to have our way at the expense of another person's faith? Because he says, if somebody watches you do something questionable, and for them it's unhealthy to do, and they follow suit, and that person falls completely away from the faith. Was it worth it? Was it worth it? He says, "No, obviously it's not worth it." You are your brother's keeper. I am my brother's keeper, and we—the salvation is free, but its value is immeasurable. So, given that, Paul says, "I'd ch- choose never to eat meat again." Man, that's that's hard, you know. <laughs>
0: I'll never eat meat again if
1: it meant that. You know, it would keep my brother walking with Christ another day further. As we conclude, here's some questions I think that will help us to think about whether we're following Jesus in the gray areas or not. Is what I'm about to do likely to affect my intimacy with Christ for the better? That's a good question when you think about the gray areas. I didn't offer up a bunch of other than the card playing and stuff that I think is like nobody thinks about that anymore. But but in the gray area in your life, is is the thing you're going to do going to make you holy? Is it holy? Is it possible? Here's a question that the Bible already clearly speaks to this matter, but I haven't researched it. Or deep down, I don't want to know what the Bible says. Is my attitude likely to help a younger believer experience Christ? Would others benefit from the way I model my discipleship? Are people going to watch me and uh, be helped? Am I thinking like a mentor to the people around me? To the weak? To the up and coming? Is my attitude characterized by grace? Am I dismissive of something that for someone else is truly troubling? So it's not a big deal to me. It's a big deal to them. Am I dismissive of something that for them is deeply troubling? Am I willing to practice patient forbearance with another person's weakness? Would the attitude you exhibit have benefited you if you had experienced it from someone else at the point of your journey that they're currently at? Did you have people around you that were like, bless your heart, you know, let me, let me help you here. You know, because that's what he's saying is that when community is characterized by, you know, people that think that way, everybody's going to get helped. Everybody's going to be better. And, and so, you know, I don't know how often issues come up that we're like, I don't know what to do. I know all of these qualities are the qualities that God would commend in a believer's life. And, and so it's practical and it's helpful, I think. We're going to pray, have a time of commitment, and uh, as we do that, this is always an open invitation for you to publicly respond to the gospel. We know that Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father which is in heaven. There's no such thing as a private following of Jesus. And so we give you an opportunity for a uh, public profession of your faith in, a, in